0: Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. The following podcast is one of Robert's original messages to men on manhood, found here under the series heading, Authentic Manhood. As you listen to it, we hope it will give you both personal encouragement and spiritual inspiration to live better as a man. We want to take what I consider to be the first step in authentic manhood. And the first step to me in authentic manhood is in looking back. Real men have to look back in their life. Some of you remember years ago when the Olympic Games used to feature a little segment called Up Close and Personal. How many of you remember that? The Up Close and Personal segment. I mean, here would be this great Olympic athlete about to ski, about to go off one of the giant runs like the giant slalom. And just as he gets up there and gets his skis over the edge, they would have a flashback. And that flashback would take you back to his home in Switzerland or in Austria or in America. And you would get to see all the events in just a small summary form of this man's life that brought him to this incredible moment. And what you discovered is that these great Olympic athletes didn't get there just by accident or happenstance or even because they were naturally great athletes there was a series of events and a series of decisions, personal decisions, and sometimes coincidences that you would just be amazed at, that brought them to this incredible place where they got to perform on a world stage. You learned how they got to be what they are from their past. I remember my daughter swam for an AAU team here in Little Rock called the Little Rock Dolphins. And during those years that she swam, we had to get up at five in the morning to get her in the pool by 530 to swim for a couple of hours. And we thought that was making a big sacrifice. But there was a young man named John who was growing up an hour and a half from Little Rock who would get up every morning at three and his parents would drive him to Little Rock to swim at 530 and then take him back to Clinton, Arkansas so he could go to school. And we followed that all the way through grade school while she swam and with John and into junior high. And it was just an incredible story of perseverance and courage and discipline and hard work. In fact, it was so hard that when my daughter got to high school, she gave swimming up, but John continued to persevere. And you know, years later, I sat in front of my television set and I watched John Hargis line up in a pool in Atlanta and win the gold medal for the U.S. Everybody has a story. Everybody in this room is who they have become because of events in your past and decisions you made and circumstances that came in, sometimes that you had nothing to do with, but all of those became a mixture that created you to become the kind of person that you are today but there's a problem with the past. And the problem is this. Most of us don't really know our own story. We know parts of our story. We like to tell, in fact, the best parts. But none of us, or maybe I should say many of us have not taken the time to really think through our past and analyze our past in a way that explains us To us where we really understand why we are the way we are and why we do the things the way that we do them. And without this kind of understanding, we cannot change the things that need to be changed in order to grasp the authentic manhood that we were meant to live. We need to understand ourselves. Everybody has a story. And if you don't understand your story in a way that makes a difference in the way you live now, then what I find in so many men is that instead they're driven by themes and forces they don't understand, or themes and forces they're not willing to face they've buried in their life, or they misunderstand that robbed them of the authentic manhood that they were meant to live. Do you know your story? Do you know why you are the way you are and why you do what you do? Have you explained you (laughs) to you? It's the first step in authentic manhood. That's why we have the saying that's endured through time that says this, the unexamined life is not worth living. Everyone needs to know why they are the way they are. Well, rather than saying more about the importance of looking back, I thought maybe this morning, since so many of you are are new to this setting and new to me and I'm new to you and you don't really know me, I thought I would model the very thing that I'm saying here today by taking you back and just kind of telling you my story. It will help introduce me to you in a more up close and personal way, but it'll also help you understand the speaker who stands in front of you this week a little more intimately. And I think that's important in the journey that we're going to go on together. For starters, let me just tell you that I grew up in a 1950s family and we were somewhat the typical family, except maybe in two ways. Both of my parents worked. And in the 1950s, that was different because most moms stayed home. But most of my parents, my parents both worked. And what we had to have because of that is we had to have someone to come in to us three boys and take care of us. So I kind of grew up in daycare in the 1950s. I tell people I grew up in the modern family before it was modern. Second thing that was kind of unique about our home in the 1950s was that um, we were, well, we were really a non-church going family in a small southern town. And that was different because most everybody else went to church. When Sunday came around, we rolled over rather than get up and get dressed and and go to a local church. Now, we were on the rolls of a local church. I remember, in fact, uh, one time, this was only happened one time, but I remember when the Methodist minister came to call on my family. Being a family that really didn't go to church much. I remember when the pastor came in and sat down with my folks and us, I remember how foreign that felt. It really was strange. And I can remember when he finally said goodbye and walked out the door, and my mom shut the door and leaned up against it and just went, Whew. she was just glad that was over. It was like we were in two different universes at that moment. And now looking back on it, I think, you know, it was kind of strange that, that, that I never saw my parents pray ever at a meal or anything. We never had one serious spiritual discussion of any kind all the years that I lived at home. And that affected me, had an impact on my life. But those were kind of the two of the kind of the general distinctions of growing up in the 50s. But with that said, let me introduce you to my family for just a moment. I want to introduce you first to my dad. My dad's name was Thomas Charles Lewis. And he grew up in a well-to-do family in Ruston, Louisiana. His dad was a successful businessman. He was the owner of the local paper there and editor of the Ruston Daily Leader. And because of that, my dad had things that a lot of other young men didn't. And I think he used those to play a lot. At least that's kind of the reputation he had as a young man growing up. In fact, when he was in his early 20s, he took, took off and went and lived in Southern California. Later, when the war started, my dad joined the U.S. Army and went and fought in France. And he was a proud United States veteran of the war. And after the war, he came back to Louisiana and settled in Ruston and became an insurance agent. That's what he did for a living. Then there was my mom. Lily Ethel Taylor Lewis. They called her Billy. She was the son, daughter of a farmer, lived in Farmersville, as a matter of fact, Farmersville, Louisiana. And she was the youngest of 10 children. My mom was a very strong-willed, determined, ambitious woman. And I think that's why, rather than being a homemaker, she was a working woman. She became an office manager of a fairly large legal firm. She was the personal assistant to a lawyer who became the lieutenant governor of the state of Louisiana. And then later, after he passed on and his son became head of the firm, he became a a state senator. And she worked for that firm for 38 years. Then there was my older brother, Charles, who was four years older than me. Charles was a uh, really smart individual, Uh, a a guy who was very talented, especially in art. And when he graduated from college, he was trying to get entrance into the Los Angeles School of Art. He He was very talented in that regard, but it was also at the height of the Vietnam War. And because of that, and because his number was one of the first drawn, he had to instead put off that career and then enter into the Navy. And he became an interpreter. In the Navy, And then that changed his whole career because while he was in the Navy, he decided Art wasn't the way to go, so he later ended up a lawyer in Houston, Texas, guys. Then there was my younger brother, John, who was two years younger than me. John was kind of the easygoing, fun-loving, musically talented guy in the family. And then there was me, the not-so-smart but very energetic uh, kid who loves sports and loves them to this day. For 17 years, as you look at those five individuals, we were pressed together for 17 years in a small white brick house at 308 South Bonner Street there in Ruston, Louisiana. And just like you, though your family picture may look a lot different than mine, but just like you, those formative years were formative. The experiences there, the moments there, the influences there, Help shape in a large part the kind of person that you see standing in front of you today. In fact, I want to just share with you some moments that shaped my life and then we'll summarize and I'll apply it to you. First of all, I'd say there were some good moments from our family. You know, I felt generally supported by my parents growing up. My parents came to my ball games. Uh, my parents were the kind of people who would show up at school events, especially my mom. She got involved in those school events and I felt her support there. Uh, Our home was always open to my friends and because I was kind of a leader type, I was always bringing large numbers of guys over to her house. My mom loved them to come over and cook for them and uh, provided a place where it was fun to be at my house. So I, I felt generally supported all the way growing up. I have great memories of our annual Florida vacation every year when summer came, the big event for our family was all to load up in the back of our Rambler with no air conditioning, which I could have done without. And pressed together, we would drive from Louisiana down to Pensacola and spend a week or two at the beach. A few times my dad took my brother and I fishing. You know, it's interesting. I can remember every one of those fishing events in detail. Four or five times we went fishing. Just my brother John and I And dad. Looking back on that, those moments, I would say, that was the best of dad. Those moments where there was no agenda, just me and dad together for a whole day of pure joy to a little kid. And remembering back on those moments, I, I learned something and I learned how much a son's soul craves the best of dad and just to be with dad. In those kind of moments. There were also noble moments, not just good moments, but noble moments in our family. The way my mom took care of her aging parents. That taught me a lot about loyalty to family. Uh, the way my dad would get up every Veterans Day at 3 a.m. and go out and put flags on every veteran's grave. He was known for that. Even when he became very aged. And, uh, and 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 his health had been robbed from him. The one thing he would relentlessly do is get up on Veterans Day and go out and put those little flags by every grave to honor those men. I also remember that my dad taught me a lot about human dignity. I remember, both my parents worked, and so we had to have people come in and take care of us. One of the individuals that my dad Uh, enlisted to take care of us was an African-American kid named James Jones. And I don't know how my dad connected with him. I never will figure that out, but he picked this young man out and brought him into our home. And at night, he would, uh, in the afternoons and evenings, a lot of times he would stay with us. And my dad had a real special relationship with James. And I can remember when I was about 10, starting to get a little rambunctious one night uh, James was trying to put us in, to bed and I didn't want to go to bed and I got mad. I got furious. I remember it's the 50s and I remember James saying, you've got to go to bed and I looked at him and I said, nigger. James grabbed me and threw me over his leg and gave me a good swat on the rear and put me in the bed and as he's putting me in the bed, I said, I'm going to tell my dad that you hit me and I can remember there was a little fear in his eyes. And as soon as my dad came in, I, I jumped up and came running there and said, Daddy, Daddy, James hit me. And I remember James standing behind me and he said, Mr. Lewis, Robert called me a nigger. And the next thing I knew, I was flying through the air. <laughs> Landed over my dad's knee. and I got the spanking of my life. And he pulled me up after that and he said, never, ever, Use those words again. And I learned a lot about human dignity. You know what? I think James learned a lot too. James was the first person in his family to ever graduate from college. Did so because of that special bond that my dad had with him all those years in that small southern town. But there were noble moments in our family. There were also missed moments. There was no critical life instruction from my mom and dad. You know, it's interesting, growing up and being around them all the time, there were so many missed moments concerning just basic life skills. Never had a discussion with my dad about girls. He never told me about money or cars or manhood or how a man looks or acts. And so I always felt a certain sense that I had to do it alone. Maybe you had that feeling growing up. In fact, I remember my senior year when I was being recruited by Tennessee and Arkansas and LSU and Ole Miss and all these schools were calling, especially my home school, LSU, putting all this pressure on me. The coaches were flying up to meet with me and talk with me. And the governor was calling me on the phone saying I had to sign with LSU. And I was so confused. At 17, I looked at my dad. I said, what do I do? And he said, hey, it's up to you. And I... I wanted somebody, it was up to me, but I wanted somebody to process life with me. And because I had no one to process with, I made a lot of mistakes. And in making a lot of mistakes, it made me at times an angry person because when I left home at 17, I left clueless about life. There was also no emotional closeness, especially from my dad. You know, I never heard my dad say, I love you. I never heard my dad say, I'm proud of you. Now, dad was around, but it was funny. He felt close and strangely distant at the same time. And for a young guy growing up, 14, 15, 16, that, that's hard to put together when your dad feels like he's real close, but real distant. And yet that was always our relationship, we had these missed moments. There were also hurtful moments. Probably the most hurtful moment was around alcohol that my dad increasingly gave himself to as I moved into my teenage years. It was also kind of the key issue that began to unravel my mom and dad's marriage in the process because they were constantly at odds with one another, bickering, fighting, nagging one another. And we three kids running around in that home and then getting bigger through the years we were kind of caught in the middle of this war and in some strange way were invited in to help manage it. Now, my two other brothers, my older brother, he just, he, he just begged off. My younger brother just went passive. And for whatever reason, maybe it's just because of my personality, but again, these are the events that shape a life. I felt like I had to be the negotiator. So I got enlisted into the war as the negotiator between mom and dad. And I remember trying to do that at 14 and 15 and 16 and 17 and 18, trying to bring peace to our home. And I made both of them mad at me. And you know, it's tough to be a teenager and be managing your home and your parents. But that's where I found myself. And you know, you swallow a lot of pain when you're starting to take care of your parents, when they should be taking care of you. And you also swallow a lot of shame. I remember one day my dad asked me to go down and pick up a couple of tools from a hardware store. We only had one in Ruston. And I went down because he was working on a table that he was putting together. There were a group of guys in this hardware store and I went in and I was asking for the stuff that my dad asked me to buy. And they said, well, what are you doing? And I said, well, my dad's building a table. And one of the guys turned to a couple of the other guys standing there and said, yeah, Tommy Lewis doesn't know much about, you know, building, building stuff, but he sure knows a lot about alcohol. And everybody had this big laugh. And there I am standing with my little tools in my hand. And inside, I'm dying. Because I felt, Nothing but just a massive amount of shame that I didn't know what to do with. There were also defining moments. Probably the defining moment occurred after I left home. But it had been occurring all the way through my years at home. It was at my wedding. You see a picture of my wedding there, and there's my brothers to the to the right. And there is uh, my wife's parents to the left. Notice my wife's dad. He didn't look real excited about who, uh, <laughs> who she's marrying at the moment. He looks pretty stiff there. And then there's my mom over to my left. And you're probably wondering what I was wondering that day. Where's my dad? When I showed up at my wedding, my dad didn't show up. Later I found out he was so drunk, he couldn't get out of bed. And I remember driving off with my new bride out of Ruston to our honeymoon. As we passed that city limit sign, I said to myself, I'm going to be better than that. And it became one of the defining themes of my life. I'm going to be better than that. You see, everybody has a story. Every guy in here has a story. Your story is different than mine, but in some ways it's probably similar to mine. Everybody is who they have become because of moments like that. Noble moments, missed moments, hurtful moments, defining moments. You are who you are in part because of those things. But do you understand those things? And maybe the bigger question, do you understand how those things are impacting your life right now? You see, to be a real man, you got to look back. You got to figure that out and decide what's worth keeping and what's worth throwing away. When I left home, I left clueless. I had all kinds of mixed messages going on in my soul. Some of those were good. Some of them were not so good. The good ones were when I was on the campus at the University of Arkansas in the 60s and it was a big anti war environment, I felt love for my country. You know where I got that? You know where I got it. At the same time, when I was on the campus, you know, there would be times where I'd be talking to some friends and somebody would say a racist statement or make a racist joke. And it always made me mad. You know where I got that? You know where I got that. At the same time, I was clueless about girls. And I made a lot of mistakes with girls. And I made a lot of mistakes with money. And the car that I had that I'd bought going to college, I screwed up because I didn't know how to keep it. I didn't know how to change the oil. I didn't know how to inflate the tires. All I knew how to do when something went wrong in my car is to lift the hood, call a mechanic over and say, see this iron thing here with wires coming out of it? Something's wrong. But you know, when you're clumsy in life, it makes you mad. And anger was the one emotion I would allow myself to feel after leaving home. See, I didn't want to feel because to feel was to feel shame. So I just didn't feel at all. And that that was a problem that carried with me into my twenties and thirties. But I did allow myself to feel anger and I was mad a lot. And the one thing that made me the maddest is when I failed at something because I was a driven personality, because I had learned that the only way I got feedback in life was to succeed. That's why I think I did well in sports. Because when I did well, somebody would say, you did good. And I was this little soul wanting somebody to tell me that I was doing good in life because nobody at home told me. And so I would push myself and drive myself and work hard. I didn't know why I was working so hard and I was such an intense personality, but I was because back there in the roots of my life, it got created. Everybody has a story and everybody needs to understand their story so they can become the kind of man that they need to be. Now, let me just make some observations about looking back because this is what's going to start our journey over the next several weeks. I want to give you just kind of six basic observations about looking back here as we finish up this morning. Here's the first one. My story is not unique, which I just told you. Now, you just got an up close and personal glimpse into my life. But as a man, here's what I've learned. I can tell my story because I know now I'm not alone. I used to think I was alone. I used to think everybody like you out there that you had it good and I had it not so good. I had it kind of mixed. You know what I find? A lot of guys, they all think everybody had it better than them. But that's just not true. No matter how good you look on the outside, There's a lot of stuff going on on every man on the inside. Some of those things are hurtful. Some of those things feel like vacuums and missed moments. Some of those things are noble, but everybody has a story. And discovering that other men are like you is one of the great benefits of a meeting like this called men's fraternity. Secondly, I learned when a boy fails to connect with his dad, Demons of one kind of another often fill the void. When dad's not there, it leaves a hole in a son's psyche. Whether dad wasn't there emotionally or whether dad wasn't there altogether, leaves a hole and the son's going to fill it with something. Some are going to fill it with cheap, tragic substitutes whether it's workaholism, machoism, sexual addiction, alcoholism, power games, being like me, a driven personality, or other extremes. It's all seeking to compensate for something that should have been there, but wasn't. And what often isn't there in a man's life is a reconciled, healthy relationship with the most significant person in his life growing up, and that's dad. Third, many men have yet to reckon with their past or close out the unfinished business that still lives there. As I told you, this may be due to denial, looking back. Some guys don't want to look back. They don't want to lift the manhole cover. It might be due to lack of courage or just plain ignorance about the past and how the past affects now, but regardless of the reason, the truth is, is that some men are still trying to win at forty or fifty, mom or dad's approval, and they don't even know that they're doing it. I met a young guy. Well, actually, one a young guy. He was in his thirties. He was attempting to finish his dissertation in philosophy at the University of Chicago. Very prestigious school. I remember sitting with him having coffee and he said, it won't matter. He was trying to get the energy, the warrior up to finish his dissertation. He said, it won't matter. I said, what do you mean it won't matter? The guy had done phenomenally well in school. He said, I'll finish it and I'll show it to my dad And he'll say some remark like, why couldn't you do better? His whole life had been to jump a little higher to somehow hear dad say, you've done good, son. But his dad always had a critical comment or why couldn't you put the bar a couple of feet higher than where it was? Why couldn't you have made all A's rather than all A's except for one B? Why didn't you get in Harvard instead of the University of Chicago? It was always something else that kept him from feeling that. And his whole life had been defined by winning dad's approval. There are some like me who are for for years unknowingly trying to redeem the family name to get rid of that shame. That was me. I didn't know that, but now looking back, that's why I drove myself. I wanted to have, say, have someone tell me, "Hey, you're doing good. You're good," and I could kind of clear the name, the Lewis name. But if you had asked me at 21, I was doing that. I couldn't, whether I was doing that or not. I, w- I would have said, "What are you talking about?" Because I didn't understand what was driving me. Some men blame their past and just become helpless, irresponsible victims in life. Oh, I had it bad. So now that's going to excuse me to be bad. Some men are still trying to deny or excuse the evil they've done in their past. And that's why they're stuck in their manhood. Some men squander the rich family heritage that they had. And because of that, and because they refuse to admit that, they're never going to right the boat of manhood for their own life. There are all kinds of things that can be unfinished business that needs to be dealt with in order to move on in a healthy way in the kind of manhood that every man should embrace. Fourth, until a man unpacks his past and deals with the themes and the pain that resides there, he can never be an authentic man. You know, at some point, every guy's got to unpack his past. That's why I say the first step to authentic manhood is looking back. I talked to a very successful businessman a few years ago who, who had made a fortune in a number of business enterprises. Very impressive. In fact, so impressive that it was very obvious the guy would never need to work another day in his life. And so I asked him, because one of the kind of the premier... Uh, characteristics of his life was the 80 hour week. And he didn't need to work that much. And I said, you know, you seem to, you know, still be just pushing it as hard as ever. Why is that? And he kind of reflected for a moment and just in a brief moment of vulnerability, he kind of cracked open his heart. And he said, you know, when I was growing up in Illinois, We lived in a trailer outside of town. My dad didn't work. My mom had to take care of us. We never had enough of anything. And I remember going to school at this public school and some of the kids ridiculing me for the old clothes that I wore. the fact, I only had one pair of shoes. He said, when I was 16, I decided to start my first business And I remember stepping out of that trailer and looking back and I said to myself, these words, I'm going to get as far away from this trailer as I can get. Then he went. Closed back up for a moment. When I walked away, I thought, you know, here he is. Has millions of dollars. Could enjoy life or do do things with his life other than work. But you know what he's still trying to do? Tell me. He's still trying to get away from the trailer, isn't he? Because he's not unpacked his past. Always living in the past, men, is not manhood. It's boyhood. Playing the victim because of your past is not manhood. It's boyhood. Working all the time to achieve things that you don't even understand is not manhood. It's boyhood. Denying your feelings rather than grieving over your pain, which you may need to do, is not manhood. It's boyhood. Disconnecting from your past rather than connecting with it and understanding it and having the courage to deal with it. It's not manhood. It's boyhood. You need to unpack the past. Fifth, you cannot become a real man without help. There is no such thing as a self-made man. The scripture says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. The truth of the matter is, no man can become an authentic man without the help of other men. We need their insight. We need their accountability. We need their balance in our life. There were two men in my life who were absolutely essential with getting me through my teenage years and into my more adult years. One was a coach, a coach who just picked up on the fact that I was a needy kid and he noticed me. You know how powerful that is for an older man to notice you, especially a coach. It was just the little things that he did that affirmed me for a few things that I had, but it stabilized me in a very unsteady time living in a home with an alcoholic dad. His name was Coach Garrett. And if you know my son, my oldest son, he's named Garrett because of the incredible impact that that coach had in that brief period in my life. Now, there was another man that made a big impact, and I'll tell you about him later in the weeks to come. But I just want you to know this. There is no such thing as a self-made man. There are men who have self-made success. But they may have that success at the expense of a number of other things personally. They may be short-sighted. They may be unhealthy. They may be imbalanced. And they may be riddled with a number of blind spots. But a healthy man has other men in his life to help make him who he needs to be. And then finally, a final principle is this for better or worse, we are all significantly shaped by the family life we experienced. The past helps explain you and me, but listen, I want to make a very important announcement here at the end. After all that I've said about the past, and it's this yes, yes, We are products of the past, but no, we are not prisoners of the past. Did you guys hear that? Write it down. Yes, we are products of the past, but no, we are not prisoners of the past unless we choose to be. And we can choose to be by ignoring the past or denying the past or worse, surrendering to the past. That's why it's important to unpack our past so we can take a look At what's in there, and we can choose to keep the things that have influenced us in a good sense. But at the same time, by unpacking the past and telling our story and explaining ourselves, not just to us but to others, we can invite help and assistance to break free of those things from our past that are holding us back from the kind of manhood we need to achieve. It can be done, guys. And it's exciting. It's become an exciting, freeing adventure for me because I don't go around with shame anymore. And I don't go around, you know, with all this suppressed anger anymore. And I don't go around clueless anymore about life. And it's freeing because it ushers you into a whole new existence called authentic manhood. And it can be done. And a lot of good men have done it. But here's what I want you to know. It requires for every man this first step to authentic manhood. It's the step called looking back. Are you ready for it? Are you ready to look back? That's what we'll be doing in the weeks to come. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis sermon podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.